0: Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less travel. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less travel. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Paso. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sions are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is a proud Southerner, a survivor of childhood trauma, a disabled veteran who balances his time between teaching ballroom dancing and operating the nonprofit Save Homefront. Jacks Young, welcome to the SquarePeg podcast.
1: Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you're, you're coming to us from uh, where in Tennessee today?
1: Nashville, Tennessee.
0: And is that where you're from initially, or are you doing a music mm-hmm. thing there, or what, what's going on?
1: Well, sir, I've been here for about... Twenty years, I think, and before that, I was stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, at the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault.
0: Okay, so that that kind of that that portion of the country is is pretty much where you've lived most of your most of your time.
1: Well, I went to about thirteen different elementary schools, so I've lived everywhere from southern Indiana all the way down to South Georgia.
0: Okay, I thought I remember. Um, as mm-hmm. as as you know, and as you and I have talked about, and as our listeners know, we broadcast here from. Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is about 30 miles from El Paso, Texas, and about 250 miles south of where you actually famously were stuck and stranded not too long ago.
1: Yeah, we were uh, taking a 2018 Jeep JL out to SEMA with one of our partners, Dylan King, and uh, Kingston Media, and uh, Rolling Big Power was a sponsor as well. And I I guess it just couldn't take the weight of all that amazingness. And, you know, we just had to take the wrong turn there and – New Mexico,
0: <laughs> and and for those of you who don't know, there's an old Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon that says something about turn left and you get to Albuquerque. When was this? <laughs> uh,
1: 2018.
0: Okay, so at least it was pre. Did you get an opportunity to uh, to experience any of our any of our wonderful uh, Mexican food or or any of the famous places there uh, in Albuquerque? Uh,
1: no, sir. I have not had a chance to spend any time in Albuquerque other than the back of a of a pickup truck. Uh, waiting for the tire to get fixed.
0: <laughs> well, you're gonna have to come back and visit, and um, you know, when you do that, you let me know because I'll come up there and meet you. But you talked a few minutes ago about going to 13 different elementary schools. Now I can't yes. think of any under, any reason why uh, somebody would go to that many schools, other than possibly being a military brat. But I know that you had uh quite a tragic, if you will, uh growing up. Uh, with a single mom, uh, going a lot of different places and having to look out for people younger than you. you want to talk a little bit about your experience growing up in those in those younger years, you know, till you're about 12, 13 years old?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my mother is bipolar number two. Um, I used to say bipolar two, and people thought that I was bipolar, but I was like, no, my mother is bipolar number two. And you know, back then in the in the '80s and, and early '90s, you know, um, mental health was not nearly looked at as much as it is now. And so, because of her, you know, mental illness and stuff like that, she chose a lot of different partners that you know were were not very kind to us at times, you know, um, and and weren't kind to her. And so, as she kind of you know, went on that journey, we, you know, tagged along for the ride. And so, you know, I, I took care of my, my little brothers, you know, when I was 10 years old. And, uh, you know, it, there, was some, there was some pretty tumultuous times that happened, physical abuse, a lot of mental abuse, you know, and uh, we, we just had to endure that together as a family.
0: Now, you're moving around a lot. You talk about going to all these different elementary schools. Were they all uh, kind of in the same area, or did you you kind of hop geographic areas, too?
1: So the interesting thing about it was is whatever partner that she was with at the time or whatever, um, we kind of followed wherever they went. So, no, the elementary schools were everywhere from southern Indiana all the way down to south Georgia, you know, oftentimes, you know, we were the only uh, light-skinned kids in our neighborhood. You know, we, we grew up in some pretty rough neighborhoods being called, you know, white trash, those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was definitely an education through a windshield, that's for sure.
0: Fortunately, um, my understanding also is that through this multitude of partners uh, your mother kept around, there was some physical abuse as well. Yes, sir. Um, you
1: know, depending on, on who we were calling dad at the time, you know, because that was the thing. Like, you know, my mother's a very good hearted person, a very kind hearted person. She wasn't a, a mean or selfish person. I just think because she didn't get the help that she needed and there wasn't the, the light that needed to be shined on mental health, it, it led her to a lot of people that were predators, you know, and so, I remember there were times that I would come home, you know, from school and my stepdad would just, you know, pick me up and just throw me across the room. You know, I was like 10 years old, like he'd kick us with, you know, his cowboy boots and stuff like that. And then there were times, you know, even when I was younger, uh, before my, my third, you know, my youngest brother was born that, you know, she was with another guy who was a great guy when he wasn't drinking, but when he was drinking, you know, he was horrible to her, you know. Um, He, you know, threatened to throw my my nanny, my mom's mom, you know, out of a a two-story window before the sheriff's department showed up. You know, there was times where we hid underneath cars where, you know, she put her hand over the baby's mouth, and I'd have to make sure that I stayed real quiet because, You know, we didn't want, you know, this individual to be able to find us. So, you know, in the earlier part of my life, like we saw a lot of things that that people see on television, you know, and it's not until years later in my life that I realized like how dysfunctional that actually was, you know, because when you're living it like you you don't have anything else to compare it to. So you're just like, you know, okay, well, this is just normal life, you know.
0: And, and, you know, Jax, I think you and I, uh, have some very similar experiences in the sense that, uh, very fortunately for me, I grew up in a very ward and June Cleaver, kind of, you know, had a mom and a dad and, you know, neither one of them drank or cursed or watched R rated movies or any of that stuff. And so I didn't experience that, uh, as a child, but you and I have discussed what I do for a living, you know, during my day job is stuff that I see and hear and listen to and deal with every day. And, And sometimes I have to, I even ask myself, am I a normal person? Um, So, you know, I I, kind of feel like you describing what you've been through and and seeing as being normal and not being phased by it. uh, You know, I feel like you and I have some sort of a connection right there. Now, you mentioned your nanny, and I did get a kick when I listened to a previous interview you were on. You you tend to use a lot of uh, southern uh, regional colloquialisms, talking about living with your nanny and your papa, your papa? Is that what you call him? Yeah, my papa. My papa, yep. Right. And you did go to live with your nanny at several different times. Am I, am I correct?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because the first time, it was like snapshots. You know, the first time was in fifth grade because, you know, when we would get beat at home, well, my little brother wasn't in school yet because there's three years difference between us, the middle brother. So I would take what I got at home out on the kids' At, at school because they'd make fun of me because of the color of my skin or, you know, whatever. And uh, I actually got into a situation where I pushed a kid, and I, I pushed him pretty hard. And when I did, I accidentally fractured his skull, and, you know, they were going to put me in a boy's home and take me away from my family. And my nanny, well, my mama actually called my nanny and stepped in and said, look, you know, you need to come and get jacks. Because you know, they're gonna take him away. And their thoughts were if they got me out of that environment before Child Protective Services was able to intercede, that they wouldn't come after me, you know, outside of the state because it would cost too much money. So I lived with her in fifth grade. I used to chew on the, the collar of my shirt and on my sleeves and pull my hair out by the roots. And so the teacher saw that. They got me into counseling. That's when all of it got uncovered about, you know, the abuse that was going on with, you know, to me and my brother and things of that nature. But then when my mom got out of that environment and she moved back, I was compelled to want to take care of those kids. You know, so I I went back with her yet again. And then there was two, you know, two years or so that passed that was very tumultuous. Eventually, my mom ended up, you know, being out of the picture. I ended up with my aunt. And then I got beat up by five kids, you know, uh, jumped on the last day of school, and uh, you know they beat my teeth through my face and all this other stuff, and my nanny was like, "You know, that's it." So in the eighth grade of school is when I kind of, you know, when I finally moved to what I like to call Mayberry, which was like a culture shocker in and of itself, because here's the street kid that's now literally living in rural America with like, you know, one stoplight) <laughs>
0: Well, you, if I'm not mistaken, you had more than one stint staying with your nanny, but in any case, you got to a point uh, in high school where you yeah. were doing some very wrong things and you had an experience. Yeah. Now, it wasn't clear to me when I've heard you explain it before. I know you were selling uh, what we call, what we might call pharmaceuticals, accident, and you had a bit of an awakening that really set you, at least for some time, on a really good path. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for me, it was like not really growing up without a mom, not really growing up without a dad. I met my dad the first time when I was 13 years old. And yes, I did live with my nanny, the fifth grade of school. And then I also lived with her, um, the eighth grade of school on until I graduated high school. But, you know, I just fell into the routine of like being a people pleaser and all this other kind of stuff. And I wanted people to like me. So I sold drugs and, uh, The problem with that is that you are just living your life recklessly because you like the power and all this. But long story short, there was a girl that was killed uh, in a car accident, and one of the people that I graduated high school with got severe brain damage. She was the driver, and it was that epiphany for me that was like, oh, my God, these either could have been drugs that I sold to somebody else or these could have been my drugs in some way. And I didn't want that responsibility anymore. No matter how much power, no matter how much popularity came along with it, like at that point I was like, I'm out, I'm done, I don't want to do this anymore. So I went from being a straight F student um, to graduating high school with a 3.5 GPA.
0: And at some point, um, I believe it was you went to Kentucky to live with your papa, and he kind of convinced you, to set yourself on a path that, that, in a more direct fashion, took you to where you are today?
1: Yeah. Um, so after I graduated high school, I was a, um, I was a father. I was a teenage father. Um, girl got pregnant when I was a senior in high school, and that whole thing fell apart. You know, I started putting myself through college, but going through, again, that tumultuous thing where I didn't have a mom or a dad or really any kind of mentor that that should have been in my life you know um I I started drinking heavily and stuff like that and I was staying with my papaw for the summer after my freshman year of college and he just saw the writing on the wall you know he saw I was going down fast and so he said get in the truck and you just didn't say no to Jack Duval, and so he took me to the recruiter and he said you're going to you know either sign up for the army or you're going to get out of my house and so from there you know my, i think it was the summer of my 18th birthday um i signed up to join you know the united states army and and uh and uh wanted to be in the infantry and and do all that high speed stuff
0: where did you did you ever get an opportunity to serve overseas
1: I did not get uh, the opportunity to go overseas. Um, I was in a combat training exercise that ended my military career, and then my unit deployed to Iraq not too long after I out-processed, and my battle buddy was killed in Iraq.
0: Now let's talk about that because the training accident, um, it, it again, if if joining the Army was one one very important point in time setting you on the path where we are today, I would say the training accident was another one. Uh, talk about climbing up that ladder and having, having something fall on your head.
1: Yeah, so we were at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, I decided to leave the Green to Gold program um, after September 11th had happened. I mean, it was very impactful in my life, like it was very impactful in other people's lives. But the other thought process that I had was, is like if I go back to active duty, then my brothers won't have to go. And then, of course, you know, they both ended up going and becoming combat veterans, but that's another story. So so we were doing a mount training exercise, which is a, you know, two-story com- concrete building with no electricity, just like it would be in the real world. And um, so it was a live fire exercise, so there was muzzle flash. That's really all the light you could see. And my goal was to get to the the next level of the building. So as as I was going up the ladder, the person above me had not secured saw ammo, which is like uh, a a smaller arms weapon, 5.56. And a big chunk of that ammo came out. And when it did, it was like me getting hit, like by a freight train at X amount. I mean, it should have killed me. So I let go of the ladder. And when I did, um, I landed on my head. And the only thing you know, that saved my life was the fact that I had my K-Pod on. So I'm not sure if I went unconscious or not, but, you know, Doc came over, saw the blood coming down my face, grabbed me, you know, put me against the wall. And then once the exercise was, you know, completed, that's when they took me back to the field trains and, you know, gorilla glued it shut and, you know, then I was off off to the races after that.
0: <laughs> well, you, you also uh, had some experiences where you had the ill effects, obviously, of that traumatic brain injury.
1: Yeah, I, I think what what's interesting about this part of it is the fact that, you know, I absolutely, absolutely believe in the United States Army, and I believe in selective service and joining and things of that nature. But it also is just like everything else that people need to understand. You know, the people that are in charge of you and your chain of command have a responsibility. And unfortunately, uh, mine fell short. You know, um, I can no longer qualify with a weapon. For the first time, i fell out of PT runs, and the people that were in charge of me just immediately said, you know, this guy is, you know, what we call a shitbag, you know, and um, couldn't train. And so I went from being a very high-speed soldier, infantry scouts, cross-training with guys that were rangers and all this other kind of stuff to this guy wanting to strip my rank from me. You know, basically living in a broom closet, you know, accused of being on suicide watch, all these kinds of things. And so every day, the guys that I trained with would, you know, see me because they set me out there on parade for all these guys to, you know, make an example out of me. And he actually wanted to drum me out on a bad conduct discharge. And my former company commander, I always hope that he's listening to one of these podcasts that I do. Uh, Captain Stanton was like, you're not going to do that to him. And it was because of Captain Stanton that I got an honorable di- discharge instead of the bad conduct discharge and all of the counseling statements and stuff that this, you know, piss poor uh, representative of my chain of command at the time um, wanted wanted me to go through.
0: Well, with all of these troubles you were having that you would you would think would be obviously uh, a result of the of the injury you you suffered during that training exercise how is it you would with, think with this injury and your inability to now qualify with your rifle your inability you know you're falling out of pt runs um and all of these other things how was this not investigated how how was the fact and we're gonna, we'll get into it later how it came up that you had a tra- uh, traumatic brain injury but how with right. all of the resources did the united states army not realize That you had actually been disabled while on duty while during a training exercise who dropped the ball
1: you know i i think really what it comes down to is is that there is a certain psychology or false bravado that supersedes in a lot of situations you know and, and I think where I was sort of the, the circumstance of that was the fact that we were a rapid deployment unit. You know, we were, we were to be cocked and locked and ready to rock 19 hours anywhere in the world. And so I think that the mindset of the individual that was in charge of me, um, was just like, oh, it's just all about readiness. Like all I care about is troops that, you know, can train and fight. And this guy's no longer an asset to me. So he's got to go. And so that's why I think it's important for the listeners that may be in active duty right now or may have people in charge of them that your responsibility to that individual supersedes just the readiness because you have no idea the effects of what could happen next in that individual's life, even though you may not be responsible for them later you're absolutely responsible for how that plays out for them at a later time, because I still have a hard time dealing with it. So, do you, you know, I'm in counseling right now because of it.
0: So do you think because you're in such a high speed position, um, you were probably less likely to get what most of us would consider an appropriate?
1: I mean, I, I can't speak for other branches of selective service, but what I can tell you from what I know from personal experience is that the infantry gets it pretty hard, right? and and the mindset is is well you're training for combat you know like you you got to be hard you got to be tough yeah but there's a time to be hardcore and there there's a time when you're stupid and i think that the way that this individual acted if it wouldn't have been in a combat you know uh situation uh role for training and things of that nature that it absolutely would have been handled differently you know
0: Well, at some point you were discharged, you got your honorable discharge, and you actually spent um, a couple of days in a Veterans Administration hospital after you tried to take your own life.
1: Yeah, um, this was several years later. You know, I went 15 years or so with undiagnosed traumatic brain injury. And, you know, throughout that, if, if things would have been, first of all, I should have been medically retired and I wasn't right? That wasn't handled correctly. The next thing was is that, you know, this, this individual in my chain of command made sure that they put a JFX identifier on my DD-214, which basically said that I had a failure to adapt to the United States military, which with an honorable discharge and a JFX identifier, all of that combat training and experience and stuff like that that i had learned Completely null and void me from being able to get a role in law enforcement, right? Which ended up being a blessing in disguise later. But the point is, is that that was not what should have been on my DD 214. So fast forward 15 some years later. I fight to get the JFX identifier. The Department of the Army unanimously says, you know, we apologize, Mr. Young, for, you know, you having to endure this. The best that we can do for you now is to, to change this narrative, you know, on your DD-214. But by that point, I'd been dealing with so many different things and dealing with traumatic brain injury. And at some point, it led to a point to where I thought that suicide was – you know, the, the best idea for me to, to take my life. And and the first time that the situation happened, I went to the emergency room and I spent some time in the green pajamas behind the glass doors. And uh, and that was a very um, life-changing experience is, is the easiest way that I could say that.
0: However, you've done it differently. And you have uh, a nonprofit, uh, uh, an organization called Save Homefront. And on yeah. your website, you talk about the cause, you talk about the effect, and you talk about the solution. You want to break these down for me. Let's talk about the cause.
1: Yeah, I mean, I listen. in so, so being behind the glass doors in the in the green pajamas, you know, first and foremost, you voluntarily check yourself in, but they decide when you leave. And so, what was a moment for crisis to me in my life had become everyday life for these other individuals and what i saw was is is wasn't the the typical narrative of what we think a veteran is you know some old guy at american legion in a vietnam jacket you know drinking a pbr sort of thing or at least that's the snapshot of like what i've seen from a lot of people and what i realized was is that in order for these guys mindset to change about themselves which were guys from 18 to 45 years old You know, uh, the narrative, the national narrative, needed to change. You know, not all veterans deal with PTSD. Not all veterans are suicidal. Not all veterans are, you know, potentially homeless. And the interesting thing about it is, is by creating an authentic depiction of U.S. veterans, which has not been portrayed in Hollywood, which has not been portrayed in the national media, we can inadvertently give all veterans a voice. So these people that are actually adversely affected by some of these things can say, oh, it's okay. I don't have to stay in this mold. I don't I don't have to, to be this individual. You know, the military gave me the building blocks to do the best things in my life. So the problem is, or the cause is, because of thank you for your service culture, And because of the fact that we're dismissive to think all veterans are combat veterans and all this different kind of thing, the majority of America says they don't know how to relate to U.S. veterans, right? So so the solution to that is to create an authentic depiction of U.S. veterans. So our focus is the life after the uniform movement. We work with community neighbors, non-veterans, right, not civilians, community neighbors, and celebrities and world influencers to create entertainment projects that garner the interest of individuals that otherwise wouldn't care about military veteran community and then be able to educate them on who these veterans really are in their communities and how veterans have been helping to build America in a lot of the roles in entertainment that they wouldn't have any idea.
0: Somehow you got hooked up with uh, Orange County Choppers. Those of us with cable television in the last 15 years are familiar with Paul Senior and Paul Junior, and they're almost comical, you know, overly animated arguments at their Orange County Choppers facility where they make uh, specially fabricated uh, motorcycles. Uh, I would imagine for a lot of a lot of them are for people who simply have the money for something like that. But we have a lot of project bikes and a lot of bikes that they make. Uh, I know that uh, I just listened to a podcast, um, same podcast you were on an opportunity to have uh, Orange County Choppers uh, fabricate a special bike for your cause. Um, Chat me up on how that all happened, how that came about, uh, how you got hooked up with Orange County Choppers and and where that journey has taken you.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, first and foremost, I think it's important to mention that it's one thing to have a vision, but it's another thing to see that vision come into fruition. And so, it was the due diligence of when we opened the doors since 2016 and Save Homefront to create these entertainment projects. You know, the first thing that we did was you know uh, a live event that turned into what eventually became the SHF Honors. Then we did the 2018 Jeep JL with Dylan King. And then from that project, we actually caught the attention of individuals that were connected to Orange County Choppers. And initially what we were going to do was take that Jeep and the bike and do like a cool combination that we could debut at SEMA or whatever. So I got to, you know, tip my hat to Dylan King for, you know, uh, the 2018 Jeep JL that we did and all that. But the cool thing about this is, you know, the people that were responsible for us being able to get the bike. You know, I've since become friends with them outside of the scope of them just donating, you know, the money that they did to SHF to get the bike made. And so they donated half of the cost of the bike, and then Orange County Choppers and them did the other part. But i got to tell you this quick story because it was between us and a few different charities. And so I'm on the call with the guy, and, uh, you know, I'm nervous or whatever because I'm a go-getter. You know, I'm I'm very tenacious. I want to win, you know, that whole kind of thing. And so at the end of the interview, he goes, you got it. And I was like, in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, dude, I know that I got it. Like, I know what I'm talking about. You know, it didn't hit me that we actually had just gotten, you know, this amazing opportunity with one of the, the biggest reality stars in the world. And uh, and, he, and, then I was, and he was like, no, you got it. And I was in the middle of traffic, and, and I'm not afraid to admit it, man. Like, tears just started falling down my face. Like, to go from being homeless a few years ago to working with one of the biggest brands in the country in one phone conversation was mind-blowing. And that, that was amazing for me. And then, you know, the next steps that followed after that were, you know, e- even more amazing. You know, um, if there's anything in particular you want to ask me about it, I'll, I'll be glad to – to get
0: into that now my understanding is a lot of these theme bikes that paul senior uh, and orange county choppers have, have done for some of these and i know they've done they did one for wounded warriors they did one for you and i think my understanding yeah. is the bike gets made and then it want you wanted to go kind of sit in a garage somewhere you you get the in the delivery and the donation of the bike but you have a very different goal uh for where yeah. you want this bike to be and how you're getting it there let's talk about that
1: yeah. So the amazing thing was is I'd never seen Orange County choppers. I actually thought that it was uh, a Mexican dude out in LA, is what I thought it was. I didn't know that it was like this, you know, New Yorker guy, you know, out on the East Coast. So that was that was an interesting part of it. And then once we got into it, what we realized was is they weren't just developing. A bike for SHF. Now, that would be amazing if they just did a safe home front bike, right? Because, you know, we would auction it off or, you know, whatever. But what we were gifted was the tribute chopper that celebrates in recognition of a 100 years of Veterans Day in this country. And the serendipity of that was wild, right, because our whole thing is life after the uniform movement and, you know, telling the stories of U.S. veterans that go on to do extraordinary things in entertainment. And here we are given the veterans motorcycle to celebrate a 100 years of Veterans Day. And so what I told them was is when they built it, I said, look, I said, I don't want this to be like some over-the-top patriotic thing. Like, I want it to to be – a symbolism of building America, and so Josh Allison was amazing in uh, how he fabricated it, and uh, Jason was amazing in the design, and Paul obviously was overseeing the whole thing. And so what they created was this amazing throwback to like embody Americana, right? Like it's got an Art Deco feel. It's got it's almost like this this amazing piece of tribute to America and building America. And so, with it being 100 years of Veterans Day, on top of the fact that this was the first time that Orange County Choppers had done a particular piece like this, I felt like that it belonged in a museum instead of someone's garage.
0: Tell me about your t-shirts.
1: Yeah. So, obviously, you know, right now, we're living in a very interesting time, right? Of the way that people see themselves, the the things that they want to hear, the things that they want to symbolize and be a part of. And so with all the stereotypes that veterans deal with and veterans charities and stuff like that, I was like, you know, how do I create a shirt that everybody can get behind and that it can have a double meaning, right? Part of the meaning of this is we want a million people to have this shirt, right?, So that way, we know that a million people have been exposed to an authentic depiction of U.S. veterans. But the other thing is, is that I also want to send a message that we're not all like extremists, right? We're not all necessarily one political party or that we're dysfunctional or, you know, whatever all of the stereotypes are. So the shirt says, this shirt makes history. And it's a twofold meaning, because on one hand, it means when you get this shirt, you're helping to preserve Americana the Chopper to be put into a museum. The other part of the meaning is is that this is your shirt, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is your ability to write your own history, right? Veteran history is American history. It's not separated. And so that to me was, you know, the, the impactful message that we wanted to have. We didn't want to make it super over the top or alienate anyone. We wanted all Americans, veterans, military, community neighbors, non veterans, to come together to preserve this American history now in the 21st century when I think it's the most important to do so.
0: How, how do you – have you been in contact – I've heard you talk about trying to get this bike into the S- Smithsonian uh, Institute and their different, different museums they have.
1: So I, the short answer is no, I've not directly contacted the Smithsonian yet. And the biggest reason why is because I want this to be grown into like a pop cultural icon. Right, so, with we get it in movies, we get it in TVs, we get toys made out of it, it becomes of a part of American pop culture history. That's why we named it Americana the Chopper. I've done my research on what it takes to you know get something presented to the Smithsonian, and we definitely check all those boxes. But if there's anyone out there, especially business owners, that are listening to this podcast or this radio show. And want to get involved in American history happening right now. We absolutely want to connect with you. I don't want these shirts just to be sold to, like, general consumers as a novelty. And so how we've set it up is is that we want to create a marketing plan for your business, your small business, or even corporation to where – You're using our messaging, our co-branding for the purpose of getting this bike into the Smithsonian or Museum of, you know, equal value and impact with these shirts, right? Like we would love for Walmart to come on board, buy, you know, 10,000 of these shirts and then give them to their employees for their resilience or their, you know, their wellness programs, right? Because it sends this message to all of America We do understand veterans. Veterans are an important part of what we're doing and and a pivotal part of us all working together as a community to be successful. And that's how we change the mindset of those individuals that I was behind the glass doors with in the green pajamas.
0: So, ladies and gentlemen, if anybody out there knows Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the National Football League, please uh, get him in touch with Jax Young. Uh, Jax, let's talk about uh, an annual awards banquet that you have uh, come up with.
1: Yeah, we like to call it, uh, it's where the Grammy Awards meets the Oscars, but it's recognition awards for, for veterans and community neighbors. And I really want to touch on the word community neighbors for a minute, because when I am in a military contract, okay, people are called civilians. The reason why they're called civilians is because of the fact that I'm literally government property. Right, Like when you sign your name on the dotted line, you belong to the government. But when you get out and you become a veteran, you are no longer under a government contract. Therefore, they're they're no longer civilians. They're your community neighbors. And so the SHF Honors was designed for two reasons. Number one, we wanted to make it where business owners could come to a night, enjoy a night of entertainment, and also be educated and as well as the community, but mainly business owners, right? Because our in state is we want to create the authentic depiction of U.S. veterans so we can prepare them for the workforce to be successful and stuff like that. And, and it's, a, it's an amazing night because we take these artists and there's these tribute songs to these U.S. veterans that have done extraordinary things in entertainment. And then we show a bio video, a little bit about their military history, but the majority is about what they did after in life after the uniform. And I had this woman come up to me, and I won't ever forget this, and this is when I knew I was on the right track. She said, you know, this has been a wonderful evening, but she goes, I normally don't come to these things. And I said, oh, I'm so so sorry to hear that. She goes, you know, I'm I'm very affluent business owner, You know, very affluent in the community, and I don't come to these things because I often feel like a secondary citizen. Or I often feel like I don't belong. And she goes, tonight, what you have shown me, what you have portrayed here tonight, absolutely helps me to understand how important I am. Just think about that for a minute. You know, community neighbors are just as important as U.S. veterans. Because if it wasn't for community neighbors, I wouldn't have the counseling that I'm able to go through to make me a better father and a better spouse. I wouldn't have the medicine that I need that helps my hands to stop from shaking and things of that nature. So we've got to get out of this mindset of thank you for your service, right? And more so into this mindset of, hey, how do we work together in order for us all to be successful in our communities?
0: Well, one of the ways that you're working together with community members is through ballroom dancing. You're an instructor. And that's actually, it was through ballroom dancing that you realized you actually had a traumatic brain injury. Is this correct?
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely, 100%.
0: Let's talk about that. Tell me tell me about that.
1: Sure. Um, well, there was this wonderful lady um, that was my student, and she noticed that my hands were shaking. And um, she asked me, she said, you, you served in the military, right? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, have you ever heard of traumatic brain injury? And I was like, no, absolutely. I have no idea what that is. And she goes... Well, I think that you should go, excuse me, to the VA and get checked out for it. And sure enough, man, as soon as I went through the, the basic process of, of what happens for them to evaluate you for, for these conditions, the, the guy was like hands down, he knew immediately. And that was a, a pivotal thing in my life. And and here's the interesting thing, right? This is where that whole serendipity thing comes in for me. When I first got to Nashville, I was coming here as a country music artist because my battle buddy was killed in Iraq. I wanted to do something extraordinary in my life. He loved the fact that I sang and supported that and all that. And so I wanted to do something bigger because Rail died doing the job that I would have been doing if I would have been there. And so... But when I first got to Nashville, just like the rest of my life, you know, I had had a crappy master CD and you know, the, the recordings that I was supposed to have to remix was empty and I got taken for a ride by the studio. And so I just was so frustrated at that point with music that I became an unloader for UPS. And I was doing that, and that was, you know, very intense and all that. But there was this ad in the paper that said 50000 a year plus benefits, ballroom, or I'm not, I'm sorry, dance instructor, uh, no experience necessary. And in my mind, it was like, I can shake my ass in the club. So, yeah, you know, I'll totally do this. And when I got there, it was, <laughs> it was something completely different than what I thought I was signing up for. But if I wouldn't have done that, right? If I wouldn't have done the ballroom dancing, fast forward, all of that time later, I wouldn't have gotten the one gift that really would have helped me to change my life. So my point is, is that no matter what the adversity is that you're facing, for the sake of sounding cliche, if you want a better life, if you want to believe in something more, then you, you just keep moving step by step in a direction, right? Well, because given that that would have never happened.
0: Given the ballroom dancing angle, it would seem to me one of the best things that could ever happen for Save the Homefront. Dancing with the Stars, whatever to get in contact with you.
1: We got to work with some of the the earlier stars of, of Dancing with the Stars, which 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 was pretty cool, you know, um, which is a whole other story. But you know, I'm working on putting a book together right now. A lot of people have asked me, "Are you going to do a book? Are you going to do a book?" Because of my life, and, and honestly, up until this point. You know, I, I didn't have any self-love, like I was just a people pleaser, and I'm, I'm learning how to love myself and understand myself and understand the value for things for, for me, even if they affect other people. So the people that are out there listening, you know, that, that are struggling with those kinds of things, I, I just want them to know that this is your life right the circumstances that happen to you you have absolutely no control over you, you just flat-out don't but what you do with those things makes all the difference in the world
0: well short of getting a spot on the next season of dancing with the stars uh, and that yeah. type of exposure how can listeners of the square peg podcast find safe home front how can how can we buy a t-shirt how can we support your cause do you want to give a plug to all your different you know your, your if you got a facebook page instagram page or a website. I know you have at least two of the three. Oh, you want to go ahead and yeah, plug yeah, those yeah. right here?
1: Well, that, that's the part for me that's kind of funny, right? Because it's like, now it's time for the infomercial, you know, and I and it, it's cool. I appreciate the opportunity, but I, I want people to know that the work that we're doing is absolutely pivotal in order for us to cultivate opportunity and create change. So you can go to shfveterans.org. Or thanks to Orange County Choppers, you can simply go to Google and type in, you know, Save Homefront, and you can see the six-part episode that we did with them. Or you can find me at Facebook at Jax Young, or you can go to at Save Homefront on Facebook as well. And I just want to say that I love this podcast for the reason of don't judge a book by its cover, right? That this is an amazing format for that very reason alone. Well,
0: you know, I'd listened to a podcast you're on before. I cruised your website, I stalked your Facebook page, and that is the act, the absolute sincerity um, in your words, in your face, in the energy when you talk about your life and when you talk about what you're trying to do uh, to help veterans and to help community partners. And for that, I thank you. and And, and it's been a real gift uh, for me to be able to have you on this podcast. I want to thank you for your time, and I do stand by that offer. If you find yourself in New Mexico, you need to reach out to me. You you know how to get a hold of me. You can get a hold of me on the SquarePeg podcast. You know how to get a hold of my, my personal Facebook page. I expect you to do that and and we're gonna show you some at the very least some good food.
1: Absolutely. I love good food, brother. I I tell you what, I love good Mexican food. But to all the listeners out there, please support this podcast and please support this journey because I do a lot of different things, but when I get an opportunity to again show a different depiction an authentic depiction which i think this podcast is all about like i jump on that with both feet so please continue to support this journey i think it's absolutely amazing and thank you so much for having us today
0: Jack young of save the home front has been our guest this week on the square peg podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode we hope you'll tune in next week for another very special guest i'm your host andrew lawrence thank you so much for listening so long Proudly produced by lascrucestoday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.